uh, continuing a series on the book of Acts. So if you want to turn there to Acts chapter 4, we're going to hit about half that chapter this morning, verses 1 through 22. And again, for those who are new or haven't been around, this is something that we'll probably be doing through, through the spring, uh, moving through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. You can turn, click, swipe, tap, do what you need to do to get there. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I assume um, that most of you um, in high school, junior high, you, you probably read the book The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane. It's considered a, a classic of American literature. And what drives the plot is, a, is an 18-year-old, Henry Fleming, who enlists in the Union Army to fight in the U.S. Civil War. But in his first battle, he flees in terror. And in his wandering from the battle, he, he comes across another regiment, and another regiment that's fleeing the battle. And in the chaos, one of the men accidentally hits Henry with his rifle. Well, after a while, he finally decides to return to his own regiment. And when he does, his fellow soldiers mistake the blood from the accidental wound to be 
something that he suffered in the fight of the war. Henry had successfully hidden his cowardice. And in fact, his wound becomes a red badge of courage, and he fights bravely in several other conflicts. It's been a long time since I read the book, high school. Well, I mean, you guys know it wasn't that long ago for me, but um, I, I think one reason the book resonates with with so many Americans and why it's considered a classic is because it, it asks these sort of ancient questions, you know, are heroes born or made? And, and, and what really is a hero? Americans like to think of themselves as tough and brave. You could say we have a courage culture, but we're human like anyone else. We have fears and terrors and we run from battles. And when we do, we feel ashamed because we haven't lived up to this sort of American ideal. And I think one of the things that Stephen Crane suggests in his novel is that the difference between cowardice and heroism is very, very small. Was Henry Fleming a war hero or a coward? A warrior or a deserter? Well, in a way, like Americans, Christians have a courage culture. We've long celebrated those who've been courageous for Jesus, who have done great exploits in Jesus' name. We remember Polycarp's brave stand in the Roman stadium in Smyrna. We honor Ignatius being thrown to the beasts in the Roman Colosseum and Adalbert being executed at the behest of a pagan priest at the Baltic Sea. We remember Jan Hus, who refused to recant his convictions unless shown in error by the Bible, and as a result was executed by the Papists. Their stories resonate through history and cause us to ponder, would I dare to have the courage to do what those men and women did? Or would I flee from the battle line and renounce my God? True Christian courage is, in a manner of speaking, a red badge of courage. But it's not the courage given by a phony, superficial wound. Instead, it's the courage of a Savior who stared down hell itself and whose naked body was stained red from the sin of the world and who conquered death and rose victoriously, whose example Christians follow and whose life Christians await. Yes, Christians are called to be bold. We are called to courageous living, but Unlike the American idea of courage, this courage is not of ourselves. Christians do not need to wonder if they can muster the strength to be bold. Because Jesus calls us to a spirit-empowered boldness. Jesus calls us to a spirit-empowered boldness. And in Acts 4, uh, the first half or so of this chapter we will see the need for a Christian boldness, the fruit of Christian boldness, and the fear of Christian boldness. Now, the first thing that this text points us to, and maybe it doesn't need a lot of convincing, is the need for boldness, the need for a distinctly Christian boldness. 
We pick up this story on the heels of where we left off last week with Peter and John. They'd entered the temple in Jerusalem where they were going for evening prayer. And just as they were making their way from this court of the Gentiles into the court of the women, they ran into a man who'd been lame since birth, a man who was begging for money, for alms. And instead of money, they look at the man and they give him complete health, a miraculous healing. Peter and John were going about their ordinary routine. But because their lives were all about Jesus, this became an opportunity to make Jesus famous. And they pointed the crowd not to themselves, but to Jesus as the one who had healed the man. And they shared the good news that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he died and he rose and he ascended to heaven. And as the rightful king, he calls on everyone to turn from their old way of life and to turn to Jesus' new way of life. And those who follow Jesus would receive an eternal life. And the worshipers and the merchants and, and the people in general in the temple were, were in quite a stir over this miraculous healing. And in this chapter 4, we see the authorities coming in to check things out. We have here the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees who come upon them. Now, from, from ancient times, the, the priests of the Jewish religion were Levites. That is, they were from the descendants of the patriarch Levi, the great-grandson of Abraham. But they weren't just Levites. All adult male Levites had responsibilities to care for the temple, but only the descendants of Aaron, the first priest, could serve as priests. Now, all of this was happening at Solomon's portico, which was a covered patio on the temple grounds, but outside the temple proper. So it's likely that many of these priests had to leave the temple to come and see what was going on. Then we have the captain of the temple, who was the head of what we might call the temple police. The temple was holy. It was supposed to be a place of, of worship, not a place of disturbances or crime or violence. And they had uh, an armed forces uh, that was stationed in a fortress off the northwestern corner of the temple. And, and the commotion is happening at Solomon's portico on the east end. So it might have taken a little bit of time for him to arrive. But, you know, he's charged with guarding the peace and making sure things are okay. So you might imagine he wants to make sure that things are actually okay. And then finally we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a Jewish religious sect. Uh, that centered around the priesthood. Most of the priests probably identified with the Sadducees' interpretation of Judaism. And the Sadducees had responsibility to care for the temple, and they enjoyed a very important place in the social and political life of ancient Israel. They were generally richer than the average first century Jew, and if you have read much of the Gospels, you know that one of Jesus' criticisms of the Sadducees is their kind of ostentatious displays of their wealth and their power and their privilege. They kind of like to rub it in. At least they had that reputation. Well, these three come together out of annoyance, the text says, that Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. For many of the priests, that might have been because their teaching was interrupting their normal routine. They were annoyed because they were there for the evening prayers, and now they have to deal with something else. For the temple captain, it might have been just the disturbance of it all that, that led to 
him being annoyed. The Sadducees, well, they might have been particularly annoyed by this teaching that people could share in Jesus' resurrection because the Sadducees did not believe in any idea of resurrection. And it was a point of contention between them and Jesus during Jesus' ministry. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't like resurrection. And now Peter and John are preaching that Jesus will resurrect the dead. So that's kind of a combo. We said that they, they're there for the evening prayer, and we don't know how long at this point John and Paul have been there preaching and teaching and explaining these things to people, but it's obviously getting late at this point. So in their annoyance, they had the two apostles, John and Peter, thrown in jail overnight. But nevertheless, the preaching was effective. Previously, Luke, the author of this book, recorded that the Christians numbered about 3,000 after Pentecost, but now the number of men alone is about 5,000. So there has been significant growth in the number of Christians in what appears to be only a few days or weeks at the most. The message about Jesus is spreading, and that's the good news. The bad news, of course, is that Paul and John are in prison. Now, certainly by the time the authorities got there, they recognized that these two were not criminal threats. They weren't endangering anybody. They weren't disrupting the peace. Gatherings happened all the time in this part of the temple. They weren't troublemakers. It was just the opposite. They had done good. They had done a good deed to an aged, crippled man, giving him a new lease on life by healing him. And heck, they weren't even religious threats. Paul and John were Jews who saw themselves as preaching and teaching about the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. They had come to the temple for Jewish worship. They were absolutely no threat to anyone. But they were arrested and held overnight in a first century prison. And that was unnecessary and irrational hostility. So Christian, you will need boldness because if you follow Jesus, you will encounter hostility. I'm convinced that one of the many reasons Luke records this episode and so early in his book is he wants the Christian reader to see how quickly this movement moved into hostility. The book of Acts, as we've said repeatedly, is the second volume of a two-volume set. The first book is Luke, or the Gospel according to Luke. And in that book, Luke recorded many of Jesus' teachings to his followers. One time, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus taught, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. In fact, that little snippet from Jesus' ministry is in many ways a summary of much of that second volume, the book of Acts. At the beginning of the book, the disciples were excited that Jesus was about to turn the Jewish people back to God and to restore the nation of Israel. But the reality was quite different. From this point on, the disciples will learn what Jesus meant in John chapter 15 
when he said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Christians need boldness because there are real threats. Jesus promised those threats were real. What do they look like? Well, we, we only need to look to Jesus. Not only will they persecute us because they persecuted Jesus, the persecutions we face will look a lot like the persecutions Jesus faced. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth, which was considered sort of the backwoods of ancient Palestine. He hadn't trained to be a rabbi or a scholar, so when he began teaching, many people scoffed at his teaching. They dismissed him as uneducated, unlearned, probably our equivalent of a hick. Other times, religious leaders would try to trap him. They'd try to trick him. They'd try to get him to say something stupid or at least get him to say something that, well, we might say was politically incorrect. They would try to box him into a position that they knew there were strong and polarizing opinions about in the public square. And they wanted to put him in a category, get a label on him that would cause a large percentage of the population to just tune him out, stop listening to him. Jesus was also slandered. He was slandered based on the company he kept, the people he spent time with. People tried to attack his character and his morals because he hung out with sinful people. Heaven forbid. And of course, at the end of his life, he was mocked mercilessly. They mocked his teaching. They mocked his character. They mocked his meekness. They blindfolded him. They beat him. They flagellated him with whips likely interlaced with bone and pottery and glass. They drove nails into his wrists and feet to secure him to a wooden cross. And they left him naked and bleeding and hanging in the air in the spring sun outside of Jerusalem until he gave up his life. There really were quite a range of persecutions faced by Jesus, from the relatively mild to the extremely severe. And, and that is also true of his followers. Whether, um, you know, just in this past week, there was a report of a beheading of a, a Christian this week in Afghanistan, there were attacks in Pakistan. And India, there was a shooting of Christians in Nigeria. But maybe you have felt the sting of persecution closer to home. Probably nothing that severe. Maybe it was the glare of a coworker or the joking dismissal of a family member. Light stuff, right? But it still hurts. Or maybe you haven't encountered any persecution at all. Maybe you haven't encountered any persecution at all because you know it's real. And the fear of it keeps you from speaking up. Keeps you from living like it's all about Jesus. There are certain things you tuck away and certain things you don't speak about because you know the response, you fear the response that you would be given if you did. And that's why we need boldness. A Christian boldness. Not a worldly boldness, not an American boldness. A Christian boldness. 
It's easy to be a Christian here in these walls on Sunday morning. It's easy to be a Christian during your growth group, your small group. It's much harder to be a Christian on Monday morning when those around you are not. And you need boldness. Where do we get that boldness? Well, it's not from ourselves. Going back to our passage, the next morning, another group of leaders is gathered. And we read in verse 5 that there are rulers and elders and scribes gathered in Jerusalem. And probably what Luke is describing is the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, which was composed of the religious leaders in Jerusalem from a variety of different religious Jewish sects. And although the Jews were under Roman authority at that time, they did have some legal purview, especially over uniquely Jewish matters. And Luke notes that even the, uh, the high priest, Caiaphas, and, and his father-in-law, who was, who was actually the former high priest, Annas, were there. And you can imagine that John and Peter may have been scared. You can imagine they, they didn't sleep very well the night before. You can imagine they may have stayed awake thinking about that, that man that Jesus had healed through them and the uproar that it had caused and wondering what might happen in the morning light. And so they come before the council and they're asked by what power, what name did you do this? And that's an important question. We'll come back to it. But I want to focus on what Luke writes next. He says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. So here's Peter. He's in a position of weakness and he's spent a night in jail and we know he needs boldness and he has shown boldness up to this point where does he get that boldness he was filled with the spirit he was filled with the holy spirit if there's a theme in the book of acts it's this is that jesus is continuing to reveal himself to the world by the power of the holy spirit through his followers so the whole book is Jesus at work from heaven by the Spirit through his people. The Spirit is the source of the power and the Spirit is the source of our boldness. Jesus does not call Christians to mere boldness. He does not call us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. He doesn't call us to be all that we can be. He calls us to a Spirit-empowered boldness. Christians get their boldness from the Holy Spirit, not from themselves. So it's normal, maybe even in a way good, in ourselves to feel weak, to feel small, to feel insignificant. Because in ourselves, we are those things. But when we're strong in spite of ourselves, it's because we trust in his spirit. We are filled with his spirit. Jesus had taught John and Peter to prepare for this moment. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So now here are Jesus' followers brought in before rulers and authorities to give an answer for what they have been doing. And though they were uneducated fishermen, they 
were bold through Jesus' spirit. So we know, we understand that we need boldness. And we know that our boldness is not a human boldness. It's not an American boldness, but it's a spirit-given boldness. But to what end? What is the fruit of boldness? Well, let's step back to that opening question of this interrogation in their trial. By what power or by what name did you do this? And that's an important question for them. Remember, the night before, they had been arrested because they were preaching about the resurrection in Jesus' name. They had given Jesus all the credit for healing the man, taking none of the credit for themselves. And so this question, it feels a bit more like a courtroom drama where the lawyer is trying to just establish the facts. What we've heard is that you're teaching people and preaching to people in Jesus' name. Is that true? The leaders want to clarify that. Are they acting in Jesus' name? And Peter's response is brilliant. It's not brilliant because he's super intelligent. He's not. At least we have no reason to think he is. It's not brilliant because he's super educated. He's not. He's a fisherman. It's brilliant because he's spirit-empowered. So here's what he says. He says, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man... By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Here's why this response is brilliant. First, Peter grounds this trial that he's in the middle of with where it started. It didn't start with Peter mentioning Jesus. It started with Peter and John doing a good deed in their ordinary course of life. It was a miraculous deed. A crippled man was given his full health and able to walk again. But it was a good deed. It was the work of Jesus. And this does two things. First, it reminds the audience that something eminently good happened. Sometimes when we hate our opponents... We cannot stop to acknowledge the good things that opponent does. But Peter is forcing them to acknowledge that good thing. A man whose life had consisted of being waited on and begging for money was given the power to walk and to contribute to his family and society again. That's a big deal. It was time to celebrate. It was a time for thanking God for his goodness. And you guys are interrogating us by, about what name this happened in. So he's refocusing this whole issue around the goodness of God. Second, it tells the audience that this is all about Jesus. It's not just that they're preaching and teaching about Jesus. It's that Jesus is the one who did the miracle. So, so now as far as Peter is concerned... It's not Peter that's on trial. It's not John who's on trial. It's Jesus who is on trial. These religious leaders are going to have to deal with Jesus. And Peter's going to ensure they deal with the real Jesus. The Jesus whom they killed and whom God raised from the dead. So in addition to Jesus being on trial, 
they now are on trial for killing Jesus. We discussed this in the last passage, but, but Peter can very loosely uh, throw around the language of you killed Jesus to just about anybody, not just about, to anybody, because it is our sins that made Jesus' death necessary. God's justice demands that sinners die. But in God's mercy, Jesus paid the death penalty for me. I killed Jesus with my sins. But this council, the Sanhedrin, played a very important role in Jesus' death just a few weeks prior to this conflict. They literally put Jesus on trial in the flesh and determined he needed to die. So they took him to Roman authorities to press the Roman authorities to allow a death sentence. If Jesus healed the crippled man after he had died, after he had been resurrected, after he had ascended, from hev- ascended to heaven, and if, they, if Jesus had been killed by the actions of this Jewish council, then suddenly that puts them on trial. Because if they admit that Jesus healed the man, then they have killed an innocent man. Now, by pointing out that God raised Jesus from the dead, that complicates things even further for his questioners. By pointing this out, Peter's now reminding them that God himself is on trial. If Jesus rose from the dead, then God and Jesus are one. So now they can't dispute with Peter and John without disputing with Jesus. And they can't dispute with Jesus without disputing with God and putting their own actions under the microscope. And that's a whole lot to accomplish with one sentence. But Peter has two more sentences up his sleeve. He adds, this Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. By quoting from Psalm 118, Peter is grounding his arguments in the scriptures and showing that he is not ignorant of their shared ancient faith. He's not super intelligent. He's not super educated. But he's not ignorant. Psalm 118 points to a person who was rejected by those who were perceived to have been important. Like a stone rejected by the building's builders as being unfit for the project. But in an ironic twist of fate, the stone that was deemed unworthy becomes the chief cornerstone, the most important stone in the building. And so Peter is implying that the leaders of God's people those who were supposed to be the leaders of God's people at least, rejected the most important thing in their faith, the Messiah, to which the entire Old Testament was leading and promising. The Savior of Israel, Jesus. They missed him. They rejected him. And through his resurrection, he is shown to be the chosen foundation for God's people. God's people were not going to be built on the Jewish leaders like like the Pharisees or the priests or the Sadducees. Rather, God's people were going to be built on Jesus and Jesus alone. 
And that ties into Peter's third and last sentence as we have it. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter points to this idea of salvation. Salvation is a rescue. That's a major theme in the ancient Jewish literature, what we call the Old Testament. God rescues his people from all sorts of dangers to call them his own. But his greatest salvation, his greatest rescue is to rescue people from their sin because our sin separates us from God. Our sin creates a divide between us and God. And it's a divide that our good deeds and all of our best efforts can never bridge across. Sin is evilness. Sin is wickedness. And we all do wicked things. We, we know that. We all think wicked things sometimes. I don't know anyone who would dispute that. But what we often don't contemplate, what we often don't want to think about, is what should a just, fair, honest, righteous, good judge do with my wickedness? If God is a judge, and he is, and if he is just and he's fair and he's right, and he is, what should he do with my wickedness? Well, he should punish it, shouldn't he? And if our sin is against God himself, who has done no wrong and only done good to us, Think about that for a second. It's one thing if you, if you do wrong or ignore or put off someone with whom you have no relationship. Someone who's uh, that neighbor down at the end of the block who you've never spoken to, who's never spoken back, um, with, of, with whom you have no interaction. That's not good. But what if you were wicked toward a neighbor who had always simply tried to be good to you, looked after your property when you were away, watched out for strangers lurking on your porch, checking on your grass, making sure everything was in order, bringing you cookies when something exciting happens, bringing you soup when you're sick. They were good to you all the time, and you were wicked toward them. It's another level, isn't it? God has done no wrong to us. He has only done us good. If God, who is infinitely great and infinitely good, if he is the one that we have committed wickedness against, then we can only guess that the size of our wickedness is infinite, isn't it? And so we face God's infinite and just judgment. It's an eternal death away from God. Punished forever. And that's why we need to be rescued. That's why the Christian message is called good news. It's good news that Jesus can rescue you from the consequences of your evil. And he can rescue me from the consequences of my evil. But what's more, Jesus is the only one who can do this. Now, for a religious Jew in the first century, that would be tantamount to claiming that Jesus is God. I 
think he is. Jesus is God. But notice what Peter is saying. If you want to get in on God's rescue, you must go through Jesus. If you want to get in on God's rescue, you have to go through Jesus. You cannot go through Muhammad. You cannot go through Krishna. You cannot go through rituals or rites. You must go through Jesus and Jesus alone. Well, that's the good news. And, and if you've never received that good news, if you've never trusted Jesus alone to rescue you from your wickedness, well, you can do that today simply by believing in him, believing in what he did, and by turning away from your former way of life. Now, for those who have done that, who are truly under that banner called Christian, You've believed in Jesus, you've been baptized in his name, and you've received his eternal life. For those of you, do you see the fruit of Peter's boldness here in this passage? Our spirit-empowered boldness yields witness about Jesus. The fruit of our boldness is witness. I want to be clear on that. It's witness, it's not conversions. Notice that that once Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and starts explaining to these leaders what's what, there are no new conversions in this passage. Sometimes people become Christians when they hear the good news. And if you are a person who just heard the good news and you become a Christian, I would be thrilled. The, The members of this church would be thrilled. Sometimes people hear the good news and they don't. That's up to God and that's up to them. But the Spirit gives us boldness to speak up, to share the good news, to testify to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Peter is filled with the Spirit, and in that moment, he bears witness to Jesus. In fact, if you look through the book of Acts and you look at the places where it says that people are filled with the Spirit, do you know what they they do? They testify to Jesus. They testify to Jesus. They bear witness about Jesus. They speak about Jesus. How do you know that you're filled with the Spirit? Well, one test, it's not a perfect test because many people will do this from ulterior motives. The Bible is clear about that. But one test, whether you have the Spirit, is do you bear witness about Jesus? Because that is what the Spirit does. Here's what Jesus said about him in John chapter 15. But when the helper comes, he's referring to the spirit. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the spirit gives us boldness. And we need that boldness because there are real threats. But that boldness will bear fruit, and it's the fruit of giving witness to the world. That brings me to my last point. The last section of this passage, is, this passage teaches us something about the nature of that boldness that the Spirit gives. Something we might call the fear of boldness. I'm not talking about being afraid of being bold. I'm talking about the fear of that characterizes our boldness. Now, at first blush, that might sound really strange because boldness is the opposite of fear, isn't it? 
If I have boldness, then I'm not afraid. Well, maybe that's true of the boldness of this world, but it's not true of Christian boldness. And let me explain that. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they saw the boldness in spite of the fact that they were commoners. And by the way, that means that you, no matter who you are, can tap into this boldness by Jesus' spirit. If you, will come to Jesus. And you might expect that this somewhat hostile council might try to take action against Peter and John. But they don't. They can't. They, they see a man standing with Peter and John, the man who had gone for some 40 years without walking, who suddenly, the day before, has just started leaping. What, whatever the brokenness was that was inside him was cured. But, but more than that, his, his muscles and joints were strengthened, and, and somehow he learned to put one foot in front of the other. He'd never apparently done that. So what could they say? Well, they stared at an obvious miracle. And we see at the end of the passage that the people are praising God from this. And so the people weren't going to be on this council's side. And, and so they settled for this little weenie move. I feel like I've seen this a hundred times, and maybe you have too, uh, when people who are supposed to be powerful suddenly realize that they're powerless, but they want to keep the illusion that they have power. And so verses 17 and 18 we read, and the first part of this discussion, uh, the first part of the, in verse 17, this is they're discussing amongst themselves. They say, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Do you hear that? They are powerless to do anything to Peter and John. So they pretend to be powerful, and they give them some orders. And here's their response. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. For Peter and John, that order comes down to obeying God or obeying man. It was a question of allegiance. It was a question of respect. It was a question of honor. It was a question of fear. Whom did Peter and John fear more? Did they fear other human beings? Or did they fear God? Fear is not a bad word. In the Christian faith, when we say we are, that we have fear of God, we, we don't necessarily mean that we live in terror of God. Although if we saw him face to face, if that were even possible, I'm quite sure we'd be terrified. But we mean that there's a sort of healthy fear, a reverent obedience. I was driving home with a good college friend last weekend, and I, I saw a car pull in behind me, and uh, it, it was a police car. And I made a turn, and sure enough, police officer made a turn. Well, I made another quick turn, and the officer made another turn. And at this point, I'm getting suspicious that they're, they're following me, and, and that made me nervous. 
right? I started thinking, was I breaking any laws? Had I, had I done something wrong? I had a reverent obedience for the law that caused me to check myself. They only followed the two turns, then they left me alone. But There is a rightful amount of fear to have of, of human institutions, but it can be dangerous too. It can be dangerous when our fear of man is greater than our fear of God. Then, in that kind of case, I might be more concerned with what somebody thinks of me or says about me than what God thinks of me or God says about me. I might be more concerned with my reputation with my family than my reputation before the king of kings. I might be more concerned about getting a promotion at work than I am concerned about storing up treasure in heaven. I might be more concerned about impressing so-and-so than my Savior. And if my fear of man is greater than my fear of God, I just might be silent when I'm called to speak. But Christian boldness, empowered by the Spirit, has a rightful fear of God. And that right fear of God compels us, motivates us, propels us to continue to bear witness. As, we, uh, as Erica read this morning, and, and even as I was preparing my sermon, the words of Psalm 118 didn't, didn't hit me, and then they hit me this morning. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe it's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in man? Do we really believe that it's God to whom we owe our allegiance that ultimately in the final accounting of things, man can do nearly nothing to me and certainly nothing of any eternal significance. And yet, how often do we live our lives like what human beings think of us, what they could do to us, what they could take away from us, or what they could give to us is what ultimately matters. And yet, hear Peter and John's words again. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They couldn't stay silent. They couldn't shut up. What have you seen and what have you heard? If you're a Christian, haven't you seen God come into your life? Haven't you seen how God took your stony, dead heart and removed it from your chest and replaced it with a fleshy, beating heart 
for his goodness and his glory. Haven't you seen how he's protected you and preserved you? How he has rescued you from your sin and given you new life in Christ? Haven't you seen and heard that good news? How can you but speak of what you have seen and heard? Brothers and sisters, Jesus has called us to spirit-empowered boldness. So by that spirit, let's get bold. Let's pray. Father God, Forgive us for our weakness, forgiveness for our meekness, forgive us for the ways we have been afraid of men, afraid of women, afraid of human beings. What can they do? They can, they can take our life? And then what? And then what? We, they take our life, God, and, they, and we're afraid of that. And that's the worst they can do. We've been afraid of so much less than that. We've been afraid of arguments. We've been afraid of awkwardness. We've been afraid of not advancing our careers, not being well-liked, not being well-respected. Afraid of the comments and pushback we get on our social media page. We're so weak, God. We need your spirit. Embolden us by your spirit. Empower us for the Christian life that we might live and breathe to bear witness to who Jesus is and what he has done. It's in his name we pray. Amen.